Welcome to the Girl Gang Conversations, a podcast that's all about connection, sisterhood, and having conversations that matter. I'm your host, Sarah Stars, and every week I speak to inspiring women about the nitty-gritty of how they live with passion and purpose. We dive deep into our journeys, the obstacles we've overcome, our dreams, what's working for us, and what isn't. We're totally honest about what we're learning, what our daily rituals look like, and what we're struggling with. We don't shy away from the hard stuff, and we really go into it all. Spirituality, personal development, magic, routines, career, friendship, relationships, sexuality, and so much more. The most powerful two words in the English language are, me too, and it's my hope that these conversations help us all feel less alone. This isn't about preachy self-help or self-improvement. It's about self-acceptance and talking about the things that matter to us. Hello, and welcome to The Girl Gang Conversations, episode 93. You can access all of the show notes for this episode at Sarah Stars, that's S-T-A-R-R-S, sarahstars.com slash podcast slash 93. And yes, I have pre-recorded this interview before my maternity leave. Today's interview is with Nicole Antoinette. Nicole is the host of the Real Talk Radio podcast, where people come together to talk about the wonderful mess of being a human. A recovering self-help addict and former goal-setting coach, Nicole's mission is to help people get to the heart of what's true without judgment and to explore how we can use grit and grace to close the gap between what we say we want and what we actually do. I love talking with her about her decision to hike more than 400 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail last year, how she successfully started a meditation practice after years of wanting to, the value of doing hard things, and what it really takes to create lasting change. Hey, Nicole, how are you? I am wonderful. Excited to be here. I'm really excited to have you. I've been you know, reading your blog for a long time and now listening to your podcast, so it's fun to get to have you kind of on this side of the microphone. Oh, well, it's fun for me, too. I know it's the ratio of times that I am a guest on something versus, you know, obviously having people on my own show. It's kind of nice to have that switch of being the one who's being interviewed, sort of, you know, so it's it's a fun, fun change. Yeah. And so the way that I love to get to know people before we dive into kind of your journey and all of the cool stuff that you do, it's just to talk about a typical day in your life. And I don't think that really exists for anyone, but are there any routines or rituals that anchor your day? Yeah, it's a timely question because it's something that I'm constantly thinking about. I feel like I still, I refer to myself as a recovering self-help addict. A couple of years ago, I went really deep down the rabbit hole of self-help and kind of got stuck under this belief that there is such a thing as a perfect daily routine or, you know, your ideal morning routine. And unless you find that, everything's going to be terrible forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So I think I'm still struggling against, sometimes I'm like, oh, well, what, I have to do this differently in the morning or I have to, you know, no, it's fine. So um, that's something that I think about a lot. But for me, the the way that I do the podcast sort of means that my schedule is really different depending upon where where I am in the kind of creative cycle. So I'm someone who much prefers to do um, – I don't even know how to describe it, but like batch working, like I would rather do a ton of work in a short period of time and then no work versus a little bit of work every day over a long period of time. So the show is released seasonally. So I'll record, you know, and produce a full eight episode season that's released every other month. So basically, if I'm in recording phase, my schedule is totally different than, you know, other times. But Sorry, I'm going off on a lot of tangents. Um, The things that are anchors for me, um, I'm on, as of the time of this recording, day 116 of meditation, which is like life-changing for me that I was able to stick with this for so long. (laughs) So I know, oh my gosh, we can talk about that. But um, so that's the first thing that I do in the morning is read. Reading is kind of the bookends. I keep my Kindle right next to my bed. I read before I go to sleep. I read when I first wake up Um, and then meditate. And then make breakfast, which is usually a green smoothie for me. I like smoothies a lot. It's an easy way to just throw a bunch of healthy things that maybe I wouldn't want to eat on their own, like into a thing together. (laughs) 
Um, and then, you know, from there, again, it really depends. If I'm recording, then my day is really all focused around that for the most part with kind of exercise bursts when that happens. Um, both my husband and I work from home, uh, which is nice. So we are able to have lunch together during the day. So that's, you know, at noon. We both really try not to schedule anything around noon so we can eat together. Um, you know, but that's those, the, the morning things are really the only kind of anchors, I would say, because it really depends on, you know, what else is going on. I can relate so much to what you're saying about the kind of recovering self-help addiction, too. And I'd like to circle back to that in, um, in a little bit, because I think it'll relate to something else I'd love to talk about. But I'd, I'd like to hear, you know, more about this new approach to meditation, if it is new, like, what kind of you know, obviously, if you've had a self-help addiction, like everyone and their grandmother has told you that you need to meditate every day, um, and yet it's so hard to stick with. So what is it that's changed for you this time? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so for me, change, I mean, I love talking about just the process of change in general. So, you know, looking with meditation specifically, for me, I typically only make a change or successfully make the change in my life when the pain of not making the change outweighs either the fear or the discomfort or the laziness associated with the change. That's like the most honest thing that I can tell you. It has to get to the point where, you know, making the change is really the only option. So for me with meditation, you know, to your point, yes, everyone and their sisters, grandmothers, friends, brother, right, says any list that you read about, you know, productive people or successful people or the best morning routines feels like every single person meditates. So for me, for a long time, it was something that I felt like I should do as opposed to something that I wanted to do. And I have never successfully made a change in my life that was something that I thought that I should do because that will last for maybe a week, right? Like you can kind of pressure yourself into it or try to guilt yourself into it. But if you don't really want the thing for a real intrinsic kind of good for you reason, it's not going to stick. Um, so for me, that was kind of the, the false starts with meditation is it was always like, this is some thing that I'm supposed to be doing, but I don't actually know why, or I don't actually want to do it. So it became really easy to skip it. Um, and that went on, you know, for a couple of years, you know, I would try and I would get a couple days or a week or a couple weeks and, you know, just never really stuck with it, especially because I was under this kind of false belief that meditation is something that you can be good at. Like the fact that my brain was always crazy and wandering around and, do, you know, I just thought, oh, this is something that's not for me. You know, I, I my mind is too busy for this, which, of course, those are the people who need meditation the most, right? <laughs> um, but I mean, to be honest, I don't like things that I'm not good at. I think that's pretty common. Um, and I felt like I wasn't good at it. So here I was starting my day with something that I felt like I should do that also I wasn't good at that made me feel bad about myself. And so it was just this kind of negative cycle. And you know, what finally changed for me, it was a couple of things. Um, this past winter, so, you know, December, January-ish, um, I, I was having a lot of anxiety, which is something, depression and anxiety is something that I've struggled with a lot. Um, but it was particularly bad anxiety. And I just felt like I couldn't get grounded and I couldn't get settled. And I had this this moment one day where I thought, you know, maybe meditation would be helpful. Maybe it could be something that I don't need to be good at, but just the act of doing it, which of course is all meditation is, right? Continuing to come back to it. Um, maybe it would be helpful. So, you know, for me, what works when I'm making a change, once I've decided to do something and it's for an actual reason that I want, um, sort of a journaling exercise around giving myself the freedom to admit what needs to be true in order for something to work. So for me, as silly as it might be, so for me, this is this might sound ridiculous, but the things that needed to be true, I knew that I needed some kind of app or some kind of guided meditation, at least at the beginning. Um, so I bought the Headspace app. I did that, which has been working really well. And then the other thing that I knew that I needed to be true was I needed to do it before I left my bedroom in the morning. I just, for whatever reason, once I go downstairs and make breakfast and play with my cats and talk with my husband, whether or not I should have the willpower to then do it or not, I'm not going to do it. So I had to be honest with myself that the only way it was going to happen was, you know, to use an app and to do it in my room before, um, you know, before the day started. So it was just kind of a series of being honest about what are the little things you know, so often we rely on willpower, I think, um, and as opposed to just being like, this is the thing that needs to be true in order for me to do this. So why don't I just do it? Yeah. And that seems like such a kind of powerful practice to go through just in self-awareness of knowing those things. I think it's really interesting what you said about change coming to from that being in that place of the pain of not doing it being greater than the pain of doing it. And I'm curious 
when you're someone who's made a lot of big changes from you know stopping drinking and you become um, a really devout runner and deciding even to stop running I think is quite a big change and obviously some of those changes are different like shutting down your business is like not a habit but it's still a big change to make but I'm curious like to some people you know like they do really want to impress upon us like the willpower like building the willpower to make a change do you think that you can manufacture that pain that you in particular need to make a change or is it something that has to almost occur spontaneously I mean I've never been able to manufacture it I've certainly tried um, you know uh, but it's change is hard right and I think that anyone that says otherwise is wrong or lying or maybe they're you know the 0.001 percent of people for whom that's not true if so awesome unicorn sparkle dust for them you know but i think for for mostly everyone change is hard Mm -hmm. and we don't want that to be true that's why there's all these 10 step life hacks six things to whatever you know because we what we want so desperately like with our you know cute vulnerable like human hearts is we want things to be easy And, you know, so we'll buy, you know, the 30 day whatever that someone promises it's going to, you know, make it easy. And sometimes programs and tools and mentors and coaches and, you know, books and resources can be really helpful. But I think that it's only helpful if you don't enter into it with the false belief that change is going to be easy because it's not. So I think for me, it's first of all, accepting that that's true. So if I want to change something, and obviously the more ingrained the habit or the behavior is that you want to change, or the more shame or fear or, you know, just kind of stickiness that or emotional stickiness that's kind of surrounds it, the the more challenging it's going to be. So in order to overcome those obstacles, I find that I do have to reach that pain point first, where I, I almost get to this is, you know, what it was for me when I quit drinking. I mean, there were plenty of times where I thought about it before I actually was able to do it. And it was only at the point where I kind of felt like I have nothing to lose with this, right? So I was, you know, afraid of what my friends would think I was afraid of what was going to happen. I was a very public party girl at that time. What's going to happen to my social life? What's going to happen to my blog? What's going to, you know, all these, I had so much fear around making a change. And it was only when I got to the point where I was like, I can't live with myself anymore. I'm the one who has to, you know, put my head on the pillow at the end of the night and go to sleep with myself alone. And if I'm not, you know, if I'm not happy, then something has to change. And so I think it doesn't always have to be as dramatic as that, but I think the, the harder the change, the more emotional the change, yes, the more kind of in pain we have to be in order to actually be ready to do what change requires. Mm, yeah. I mean, And I'm the same way. Like, I think I so wanted to, like, strong arm myself into change for so long. And, and it can be frustrating when it feels like actually just having to wait for for it to be painful enough or for things to shift in a certain way. And then all of a sudden, you just have to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think there are... I think that's that's true for me always, right? I can only speak about myself, but I do think that there are things that do make it easier, right? It's not just you get to this point of blinding pain and then everything's an uphill battle forever. I do think that there are some things that have helped me. I mean, first of all, like I said, accepting that change is hard, you know, that feels that feels very freeing because it gets you out of the comparison loop of this is so easy for everyone else. What's wrong with me that I'm having a hard time, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I think about when I first started running, I mean, I quit drinking and started running on the same day. Running was really kind of my way out of the out of the hole, so to speak. And I had never been athletic. I had never played sports. I had never done anything. I mean, I literally could not run for two consecutive minutes. Like it wasn't starting from a complete beginner level. And I remember even after doing it for a couple of weeks and, and a month, I was so mad at myself that it was still so difficult. You know, you see the fitness magazines or whatever on Instagram and you just think it's so much easier for everyone else and it's not easy for me and there's something wrong with me and it's going to be hard forever, so I might as well quit, right? So I think there's some kind of mental shifts that can help make change easier. This idea that there's nothing wrong with you, that it's hard for everyone, that it's always hardest at the beginning, right, unfortunately. And, you know, this idea, I think, with change, something that really helped me a lot was kind of breaking down the difference between the fantasy of the thing and the reality of the thing. Like the fantasy of, you know, training for a half marathon or running half marathon, you know, it's you have all these really cute clothes and you look exactly like the the person does on the cover of Runner's World and like no one's sweaty and it's just this like glorious, right? Like you have this fantasy of what it's going to be like. You can just run with your friends and chat and, but the reality is like pretty awful. Like most of the time running, like maybe once every 12 runs, right? You have like a good run or bad run, but for most of the time it's just kind of a slog. 
And so I think it's true with anything. I have these fantasies of what it would be like to write a book, right? Like you're in Italy, in your villa that somehow you have money for, and you just have this typewriter and the words just flow. And it's amazing. But like, mostly it's terrible. Right? Like That's not what writing a book is at all. So it's being able to kind of reconcile the fantasy versus the reality. And are you willing to do what the reality requires? Yeah. Okay. So I think this leads well into like, we'll kind of circle back to that. Cause I, I want to talk about your, um, your hike of the Pacific Coast Trail. And I think you hiked over 400 miles. Yeah, the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail, I did the Oregon section in 2016. So that was 460 miles. And then I'm doing the Washington section this coming summer. So I know essentially that will have already happened by the time this comes out. But um, the Washington section is 500 miles. So I'm doing that this summer. Yeah. And what inspired you to undertake that? Oh, geez. (laughs) How much time do you have? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. So, okay. I quit drinking and start running on the same day, like I said. And for four years, I ran really seriously. It was, I mean, it was a lot of things for me. It was a life raft. It was, you know, because when the thing about change, when you, it's not just about changing a behavior. Like it's not just about not drinking. But if your whole life revolves around something, you know, all my friends were people that I drank with. It was really the basis of my entire social life that I needed, you know, a full kind of 180 reset in order to be able to move forward. It's not enough, I think, to just take the behavior out. You have to replace it usually with something else. Mm -hmm. And so that's what running was for me. And it was, you know, for the first time, I really felt good about myself and I was doing this hard thing. And running was really the first thing that I had ever started, found that I was terrible at and didn't quit. And that changed my life. And just this, like everything I feel like that I've learned about change, I learned through this process. And it was so hard in a good way and so rewarding. And it was just so nice to kind of have this structure and be able to push myself and to, you know, learn about myself, all of that. And um, so fast forward, um, you know, four years, something like that. I uh, found, when was it? It was around my, I think, four-ish year soberversary, something like that. Um, I really wasn't enjoying running. And I didn't know why. I mean, sometimes you don't enjoy it on a day-to-day basis, but I'm talking, you know, weeks and months, like I really hadn't been enjoying it. And for me, that's something to look at. And, you know, so I started to realize that running at that point had become something that I was afraid to stop because I felt like if I stopped running that I would start drinking again. And I realized that that wasn't a good enough reason to run for me and that I sort of needed to prove to myself that I could take a break from running and you know, that I had changed enough, I had done enough personal work and personal growth and, you know, whatever to not go back to this person that I was before. And so I took, I I stopped running, basically. (laughs) And I uh, didn't realize that it was going to be such a long break, it wound up being about a year and a half. But during that period, you know, it was wonderful to see that my sobriety was something that stuck, which was great. And while it was nice to take a break from running, I felt like I missed the kind of inherent challenges of it. And I wanted to do something else that was hard. In a way, I felt like running had taught me all that it was going to teach me. And I was looking for something else. And um, that's kind of where long distance hiking came in. I I grew up in Manhattan. I've been kind of a city kid. I was a city kid. I grew up, you know, there in London. I lived in San Francisco. I lived in LA. I'd only until moving to Oregon, only ever lived in big cities and had no outdoor experience literally at all. I mean, I think the most outdoorsy thing my parents have ever done is drink wine like on a covered patio, (laughs) you know? So it's like I was not the same way that I had never been athletic. And then, you know, because running was so hard that it was fulfilling. I don't know this like long distance hiking, backpacking, it seemed like that, but on a whole other level, because it's not just that I had never done the activity before. I had never, I had never gone camping. I had never done anything like that. And I just thought, wow, this is something where I literally don't know how to do any of it. And I was looking for sort of an all consuming challenge and that, that was it. So that was kind of the, what led me to deciding to do that trip. And you have some great episodes of your podcast where you followed up and talked more in depth um, that I'll link to for people who want to hear kind of about even like what you ate and how you prepared or didn't prepare and all of those kind of things. Um, and what I really wanted to ask you about is like, what did you hope to get out of that experience? I guess you've just said the kind of the challenge of it. And then what did you end up getting out of it and learn from that experience? 
Yeah, I yeah I did a recap episode when I came back where I basically just took you know people from my community out sent in questions and it was fun to kind of answer those questions and and do a recap like you said of like the nitty gritty stuff. Um, what was I hoping to get out of it? Um, I think it was mostly just doing something else. It was a couple things. I think it was doing something else that was hard. I think that it was finding. I wanted to find something that was rewarding that wasn't running because I was kind of stuck in this fear that, well, if I don't start running again, then I'm never going to find anything else that, you know, that pushes me, that challenges me. And again, like, I don't like feeling backed into a corner. I didn't like the feeling that I had to run. Right. Mm -hmm. So I wanted it to be more of a choice. So this idea of opening up a whole other world of activities, um, that, that was interesting to me. I wanted, I mean, I wanted to spend more time outside, you know, all the kind of Again, the fantasy versus reality, all the nice things that people think when they think about doing a long backpacking trip, you know, time in nature and time to think about your feelings. And like that's true, but also it's mostly awful. So, I mean, the like the most honest thing that I could tell you about this hike was that it was amazing and it was miserable. Like it was, I mean, it was the hardest thing that I've ever done by so many degrees. And some of that came from just mistakes that I made, right, that I, I have since learned from. But it was just so hard and it was so boring and it was I was so lonely and I was in so much pain and it was just it was basically like sort of nonstop agony (laughs) I mean I finished this hike and I was like fuck this never again like this is terrible I'm never doing this again and then you know I guess as these things go enough time went by that you know then it became the new year and I started looking at all the pictures and the pictures are so beautiful and maybe it wasn't that bad and maybe if I made a couple of changes it could be different next time and so here I am about to do this stupid <laughs> thing again so I don't know it's funny like the second time around I feel like what I got from it last time was just proving to myself that I could do it like I do feel like I had something to prove last year and I think that that can be good fuel. It can be good motivation, feeling like you have something to prove, like to people who didn't believe in you or to your haters or like to yourself or, you know, wherever that comes from. And for me, I felt like I had something to prove to myself, um, which got me through, but it isn't really enjoyable motivation. Like doing something kind of like with a chip on your shoulder or being sort of regressive about it. I felt like it wasn't as I didn't let myself enjoy it because I felt like I had something to prove. You know, I had to hike these big mile days and I had to, you know, do all this badass stuff. And it was just like I made myself miserable. It's basically like a self-torture experience. So, I mean, this time around, I'm just trying to do some things differently. And hopefully I've learned enough that it will be like at least 2% less miserable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, That's interesting. And, you know, obviously that's kind of the idea of the the fantasy versus reality and the slog of it comes up. has come up a few times and also it seems like there's a real uh, message in a lot of your work about the kind of value of doing hard things um and I mean maybe this is a really obvious question but like what do you think that value is of like is it of the, the confidence the kind of internal thing or what is where does the value of like to stick through those tough slogs where does that come from yeah I think it's funny before running I never valued doing hard things, which is like funny to think about because it's such a big part of my life now. But I don't know, I think something that I thought about a lot when I was on the hike is something that my friend Lauren has said that this idea that it's a privilege to be able to choose your suffering. Mm. I think that it's really easy to glorify hardship, right? And so like just anything that we're going to talk about in this arena, obviously with kind of the disclaimer that there's plenty of hardship that people go through that is not voluntary and that's not to be glorified, right? So it's more that when you have the privilege to be able to choose to suffer instead of just being comfortable and complacent, that that I believe will greatly improve your life. And I think it'll make you a better person. I mean, that's what I found. I think that we're wired for comfort, I mean, I'm sure I don't know anything about like the true, you know, biological evolutionary nature, whatever of being human, but it seems that everything has been geared towards, you know, stay alive, make more humans, you know, be comfortable, (laughs) have security. And, you know, once you have that comfort, I feel like it's really difficult to choose then to be uncomfortable or to choose to do something hard when like the really comfortable thing is like just sitting right there. And I think that you become a much better and more interesting and more open and kind of vulnerable person in the world when you make that choice and when you make that choice over and over. It was something that I thought about a lot on the hike of what am I doing out here 
like trying to sleep on the ground, absolutely so terrified that something's going to try to eat my face in the night when I could go home with my husband and our cats in a, in like our warm house and like sleep in a bed. Like it was just like, what am I doing out here? But the act of continuing to do that, I don't know, there's something, I think it's almost something that can't really be articulated, even though I'm trying my best, that there's just something to be able to be like, oh, okay, I did this and I'm stronger than I was yesterday. And, you know, I think that who we are as people, it's not about what we believe. It's not about what we say that our values are. It's about what we actually do over and over again, you know, on essentially a daily basis or at least a regular basis. Like you are the sum of your choices. And for me, it's just, I want to be someone who is courageous and that doesn't happen by accident. I think it's often easy to think that the opposite of comfort is discomfort, but I think that the opposite of comfort is courage, that you have to be able to be willing to sort of walk away from something comfortable, whether that's physical comfort, right, like sleeping in a bed or, you know, the uh, when we're talking about, I don't know, standing up for what you believe in and whether that's in the arena of, you know, social justice or anything else or dismantling oppression, you know, speaking up, risking, you know, your position, risking criticism, all of these, you know, that's essentially letting go of comfort. And I think that that's what courage is. And for me, I don't know, that's, I want to be that person. And it's a constant battle because it's easier not to be that person. Like it's easier to just like stay safe and small at home. But if I'm honest, I don't know, that's not, that's not what I want my obituary to be about, right? That mm-hmm. she like watched a lot of Netflix and like was comfortable at home. Yeah. I love that. And I think like we can probably see examples in our own lives of those times when we didn't get to choose our own suffering. So we, you know, we couldn't really like necessarily opt out into the comfort and how as horrible as those times might have been, how defining they are in our lives and who we become and how you almost like wouldn't give them up. Um, and, and I completely agree, obviously, like of wanting to choose the more courageous things and, and the things that will build a more interesting life. Um, and I was really love something that you said in your recap episode around how you're kind of a mindset around self-care change. Because obviously, like, for a, a fellow recovering self-help addiction, like, but you're on the on the trail every day. You can't have your green juice or your whatever um, kind of, like, list of things you might have thought you needed to work into your ideal morning routine. And I was just curious to hear a little bit more about that in terms of, like, because I think there's almost this idea around self-care of like needing to coddle ourselves or to like be our best selves. We need to have all these really particular routines and rituals, like we said before. I'm curious, like how your mindset did change when obviously you had a very like bare bones access to food and those kind of things. Like how did your your mindset and approach to self-care change as a result of your hike? Yeah, this is also timely because now enough time has passed since the last hike that I'm like very much back in that everything has to be perfect. This is my daily routine, right? So nothing, it's not like you make a realization and then it changes forever. I think sometimes we just have to kind of keep learning and relearning the same things. But yeah, I had felt, like I said, this kind of obsession with, you know, what's the best order to do things in the morning and okay, I'm going to meditate and then I'm going to do this. And you know, when does exercise fit in? And you know, what does this guru person say that you're supposed to do in the morning? Like I was really kind of got fixated on the idea that I needed all of these specific things, habits, practices, behaviors in order to feel good, in order to, you know, do my best work. And it's really interesting the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and kind of how those evolve over time. And I had gotten to a point where the stories I was telling about myself, you know, I can only write in these specific conditions or, you know, if I don't exercise by a certain time or if I don't eat these certain things like then the whole day is like shot sort of and you can like really kind of work yourself into a tizzy of believing this and then one thing goes wrong and all of a sudden you know you're this like delicate flower right basically Mm -hmm. and I it's hard I think like most true things there's always some kind of you have to hold space for contradiction because while it's true that self-care is important, right? And that there are certain kind of anchor behaviors that are going to make me feel better if I do them than if I don't do them. So like that's true and I'm fine if I don't do those things, right? right? And so it's, it's you know, because out on the hike, I mean, I it took me, I think, three or four nights to even sleep at all. I mean, I was so terrified. Like, I didn't, I think it was night four maybe that I slept for the first time and I slept like two hours. And it was only once my exhaustion kind of won out over my extreme fear and anxiety that I was able to sleep. And yet I was still hiking like 20 miles a day, right? Oh like gosh. so, 
and this, that's the thing that I would have told myself in the past, you know, if I don't get eight or nine hours of sleep, you know, that's not good for, you know, my mood disorder, any of these things. And that's true. You know, like it is better for me to keep a regular sleep schedule. However, I, it's, it's, I think it's good to have in any sense or like it, what am I trying to say? I think that it's really important to interrupt your own routines and to sort of like give yourself like throw a wrench in your plans or, you know, if you always do something a certain way, if you always write from home, okay, well, try writing from the coffee shop one day. Or if it's always this, and that's kind of what the hike was for me. It was so completely different from everything else that I basically learned that I need none of the things that I, that I thought that I needed, right? I can, but there's a difference between surviving and thriving. Like I didn't need to sleep a lot. I didn't need, you know, all of these other things. I didn't need to be able to have green juice or whatever in order to be able to survive and make it through the hike. Does that mean that those were the healthiest choices? I mean, eventually, I feel like if I were to do that day after day for months and months and months, I would probably get really sick or burned out, right? So I think that there's just value in short, whatever that looks like, whether it's a day, a week, a month, you know, interruptions of the thing that you've told yourself, like is absolutely non-negotiable that you have to do, because it all goes back to this idea that we're stronger than we think we are. And I think that we need to prove that to ourselves sometimes. And so it was kind of refreshing for me to be like, well, I didn't sleep at all. And like, I don't need it's this many miles until the next water source. And I'm just going to hike, right? Like there was something empowering about being like, well, I really don't need that much. So a lot of the stories that I tell myself at home are really just resistance. Yeah, that's such an interesting contradiction to consider. And I think it's like in a, obviously a different way, but similar um, pregnancy has been that kind of pattern interrupt for me like because I can just do less things in the day with my current energy levels and, and realizing what things I told myself I had to do but what could actually fall away has been interesting and I think um, for me part of that too is like um, considering how those stories like tied my identity and self-worth up with certain activities like well, not even that it's just better for my mental health that I'm like somehow a better person by doing certain self-care activities and letting letting myself become aware of those stories um rather than rather than just seeing this is good for me in this way but being able to strip back some of that stuff of like doesn't have anything to do with my worthiness as a human being oh yeah absolutely mm. um and so it's like Speaking about some of the big changes you've made in terms of, you know, stopping running, stopping drinking, I'm curious how you handled, well, whether you had any kind of identity crisis around that, because I think, you know, with something like running, you then, so much of your identity can be be tied up with being a runner, Um, and did you have, was that something that you were navigating as you made the decision to take a break from running, and how did you deal with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was huge. That was probably, the identity piece, I think, is one of, if not the hardest pieces of making a change. Because, and obviously there's lots of reasons why change is hard that we could dig into, but I think that the identity piece, yeah, it's it's very real. And that's kind of what I meant before. I, I mean, I didn't articulate it this well as what you just said, but the more your identity is wrapped up in something, the more you need to reach that pain point in order to make a change. Because it's really frightening to let go of something that's become especially an outward part of who you are. And especially if it somehow relates to how you make money, to your livelihood. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for me, I, I don't blog anymore, but I, I mean, I used to, I blogged for... I think eight years. And I was, I mean, at the beginning of that, a very public party girl. I mean, I I was the one who was kind of organizing events and meetups. And I used to host this, you know, this really fun bloggers weekend in Las Vegas. It was basically all like drinking and like crazy partying. And it was, I mean, it was super fun and wonderful friendships came out of that. But, you know, that was very public. It was a part of my writing. It was a part of, you know, essentially like part-time job organizing these events, how I made money. And so for me making that change, it was not just scary oh, because, oh my gosh, I'm going to have no friends. That was what I thought. But also, you know, what am I going to do with myself? And then uh, it's funny, the same thing happened when I decided to take a break from running because the the benefit of starting running as a way out of drinking was that it enabled me to quit drinking, right? And it was in a lot of ways replacing one addiction with another, a better one for sure, you know, and I don't regret that choice. And like I said, it gave me a lot of good things, but you essentially then never deal with the underlying fact that you're attaching so much of who you are and your worthiness to what you do, to your activities, right? And what happens when you stop doing those activities? Like I'm not, And especially running had also kind of transitioned into 
sort of a business for me. I wound up partnering with a coach that I had and we taught this kind of great group program to help people who were like me, complete beginners, you know, get started with running, run their first half marathon, sort of like a zero to 13.1 type of thing. And so it was great in a lot of ways because it, it, it essentially gave me a business and it gave me whatever, what happens when then you want to make a change, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's, it's super hard. And that was a lot of, for me, taking a break from running was sort of about all of that. It was about, you know, being able to still prove to myself that I w- could not drink if I was not running. But it was also this other stuff, like, do I want to always be boxed in by a certain activity? And the answer was no. And that kind of informed a lot of my decisions after that. I ultimately wound up wrapping up that business. Um, it wasn't just running related. It was, you know, I had done kind of accountability and goal coaching, or like goal setting, that type of coaching for, I don't know, three and a half years, you know, it, with the running stuff. But I decided that I didn't want to make money off of, I don't know, like kind of my chosen activities. Like I wanted more separation between me as a person and then the what I do for money or for income. So, I mean, yeah, it was a definitely a good learning experience for me. And even since then, I've been really careful about not kind of overly defining myself by any one activity. Mm, yeah, and that's so hard. And I think that that's maybe part of the, like the emotional process of change that we don't always recognize. Um, Sarah Peck was on episode 80 of the show and we were talking about how even when you make like a really positive change, that there can be a grief process just from like letting go of that identity component or letting go of the life that you had or thought you'd had. Um, but I think it's so kind of unrecognized in society and just for ourselves that often we don't really expect to be hit with that emotional whammy and we find ways to, to kind of check out from that. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, Sarah's awesome. I love her so much. <laughs> She's super brilliant. Um, I agree with that completely. I think that and this goes back to this idea that change is hard for lots of reasons and we don't want it to be and we're not willing to look at all of the complexities. You know, there was a huge grieving period for me when I quit drinking and it wasn't necessarily grieving alcohol because I didn't even really like alcohol, right? It was It was grieving sort of this fun loving person that I thought that I was Mm -hmm. and that I really associated drinking with having fun and I didn't really know how to have fun without drinking and so I had to go through this sort of letting go of what if I'm never fun again like what if literally no one ever invites me to anything and I mean that sounds I don't know kind of out there to me now but that was those were really my fears I was really afraid that I wasn't going to have any friends and that I was never going to be invited to anything and that I would never be considered you know a fun person again and I mean this is just one really specific example but I think the same is true with lots of other changes when I I mean I've been vegan for about five years and that was another huge change you know anytime you do something I think that's sort of against the mainstream, right? Like not drinking, I mean, definitely in the U.S., I mean, in other countries too, like that's that's a non-mainstream choice, right? Choosing to eat a plant-based diet, like that's not a mainstream choice. It's definitely more well-known now than maybe, you know, the, that same choice 20 years ago or whatever. It's not like you're the only one, but there is something that's hard and isolating at times about making a different choice. And I think that it's, Sure, there are things that you can do and find community around your decisions and things like that and your lifestyle, which is great. But there's also, I think, just in order to successfully make a change and like to build a new lifestyle, you have to accept the fact that sometimes making a different choice from a lot of other people, especially if it's people in your family, stuff like that, that sometimes you're going to be sad mm-hmm. and that that's okay. I think that we put change in this very binary, you know, if it's a good if it's a good change and it's a helpful habit or if it's something that's aligned with your values like then it's going to be great all the time right and yeah. then when and then when it's you know thanksgiving and you're not eating the same things as everyone else and you know you're in the bathroom crying about it and you're like what's wrong with me i'm this is a change that i want to make you know that we don't leave room for this kind of emotional nuance things aren't black and white you can like really truly want to be living a certain lifestyle you can be living that lifestyle and sometimes it can still make you sad and that's okay right it's like I think that there's a lot to be said for giving yourself and giving each other permission to change and permission for that to be kind of messy sometimes 
Yeah, and and going back to like what you've said uh, again and again about accepting that change is hard because you know it's easy to get swept up in all the internet articles about like how your skin is going to glow and you're going to have heaps of energy when you're vegan and then not like factoring in necessarily the uncomfortable family dynamics or like the time when you have to eat like another fucking risotto or salad or whatever like that you're so sick of eating at a restaurant or whatever it is that's making you uncomfortable on that day because of that change it's so I think that's so easy to get kind of yeah like you say just not factored into what we expect of the experience. Yeah, something that I've been thinking about a lot, I mean, sort of in the context of long-distance hiking, but in other things as well, is that the things that I look back on and feel the proudest of or, you know, the stories that I'm most excited to share, the things that make the best stories, which I think are usually things that make the best life, are things that in the moment like we're probably awful right like it's 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 a funny thing how we're so afraid of discomfort and we're so afraid of disappointment or you know it's why we don't own our goals or you know go for what we want because we're so you know afraid that we're going to be disappointed we can handle disappointment like that's fine like you can be really upset you can throw a temper tantrum you can like lay on the floor and cry and eat cake and watch Grey's Anatomy and then like you'll be fine right it's like I think that it's what am I trying to say that this this idea that we forget that it's sometimes the the hardest things or like the weirdest things or the things we didn't expect or the moments where we thought we weren't going to make it through like that's sort of what makes a life I remember I read a book earlier this year shoot I'm going to blank out on um, who the author is Donald Miller I think Um, but it was essentially a book about what makes a good life through the lens of what makes a good story? And he was talking about that like the, the structure of a story or what makes a good story is a character who wants something and has to overcome conflict to get it, right? Like the, at its simple like basis, that's what it is. A like character wants something and has to overcome something to get it. And it was funny. It made me think about how many of the people that, let's say I love following on social media. Let's say it's a runner who is really outspoken about their goal to qualify for the Boston Marathon and then like charts that whole thing and has to overcome obstacles. And then whether they achieve the goal or not, it's still a really good story, right? Or Mm -hmm. same thing with long distance hiking or people who do activism work or that you don't have a good story without the conflict. And yet when it's our own lives, we aren't willing to live the conflict or to really lean into that or to push ourselves kind of like to our edge or to our limits. And yet those are the only movies that we want to go see, right? Like there's something kind of cathartic about watching someone go through that experience. It's the reason that we love Harry Potter or any of these things, right? Like person wants something and overcomes challenges to get it or, you know, whatever. And so I've been thinking about that a lot lately, especially leading into doing this new hike that it's probably going to be mostly miserable, right? Like it's, and, but that's okay because, I look back on this miserable thing from last year really fondly. So, you know, what if that's fine? Yeah, and, like, not only are we um, really uncomfortable at pushing through those messy bits and staying in them, but, like, also sharing them as well. Like, you've been really honest about the fact that, like, you know, it was wonderful, but it was mostly awful. Um, but we can, I think, be so reluctant to, to share the fact that, you know, whether it's not to, not wanting to seem negative or comparing our lives to others and yet like that's also like not only what makes a good story but like often what creates the most connection with people is to be like yeah my life is that messy too oh absolutely yeah I mean I think if I look I mean I've done a lot of things over the last at this point decade of working on online which is crazy to think 10 years in internet time is a really long time but in some form whether it's through blogging or podcasting or an online business or I've been doing some form of personal story sharing on the internet for basically my entire adult life which is kind of uh, kind of wild to think about but um, really I feel like even though what I'm doing has changed, right? Like the drinking, the running, the hiking, the whatever, like the situation might be different, but the through line for me has always been, I place an enormous value on just like honest story sharing, right? This kind of idea of real life in real time for exactly the reason that you just said. Like, I think that's what leads to what I think of as the me too effect, right? Where you read something that someone says and you're like, oh my gosh, me too. And just that moment of I'm not alone in the world. 
I'm like, it's so cute the way that we think we're these like super special snowflakes. I'm the only one who, you know, has resistance to writing and to sitting down at the blank page, or I'm the only one who like, it really is. It's so funny, this warped sense that we have of our own insecurities and fears and, you know, uh, just kind of growth process. And yet we're not like we're, you're not special. And I mean that in the nicest way. I have to tell myself this all the time. Like, what am I, I'm making such a big deal out of nothing. I'm not that special. Everyone else feels this way. And just being able to have those moments of, you know, you're not alone. That to me is really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So there's a couple of questions that I love to ask everyone before we wrap up. And the first one is when it comes to your own personal development, what are you working on learning or implementing right now? Hmm, what am I working on? Um, yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, I think, so the first thing that comes to mind is the thing that I'm constantly working on. I feel like this is my personal Mount Everest to climb. I think we all have different issues at different times, but if people are really honest with themselves, I think there tends to be one issue that uh, reoccurs more often, right, than others. And for me, it's definitely control. And this idea of kind of learning to surrender more, I, re- I mean, I really want to control all the things, right? Like the hence, everything from the obsession with the perfect morning routine to all that, like I just, I love planning, I love organizing, which is great. But the other side of that coin is like, I really want to be able to just like puppet master all the things. And of course, I can't do that. And in trying to do that and avoid, like trying to avoid, you know, unexpected uncertainties, I can make my life really small. Because if you want to control all the things, you can if you kind of only stay in your own house, right? And don't, whether that's like literally or metaphorically. Um, but as soon as you kind of step outside, in a, you know, in any different way, you're bombarded with just the truth of being human in the world, which is that you can basically control nothing. You know? So <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's something that comes up for me over and over again. But right now, specifically, this idea of courage and how do I live a more courageous life is really, really on my mind. And just this idea that... Uh, it is the opposite of comfort. And I, I wish that that weren't true. I wish that I could be really comfortable and safe and still also somehow be courageous. But so I think I'm still fighting a little bit of, uh, against that. But I, I think I've been holding myself back by just the normal fears, right? Like fear of being liked, fear of disappointing people, fear of speaking out about something and misspeaking and being misunderstood and just all these little ways that we sort of hold ourselves back from being bold and taking kind of brave actions. So in that's, you know, really kind of top of mind for me. I hear all of that so much. Um, and this next one, it could be, you know, as frivolous as your favorite candy bar or like deeply serious and spiritual and esoteric. Um, what's one thing that you're obsessed with these days that's making your life better? That is my favorite question, which if you have listened to the podcast, you know that. I love asking people this question. What am I totally obsessed with? Um, so on the silly side of things, uh, the show Jane the Virgin. Have you seen yeah. this show? Oh, my gosh. Oh my yeah, God. I love it. <laughs> so I came to it late. And um, my husband and I, if we were to make a Venn diagram of all of the kind of pop culture, TV, music, whatever things that I like and the things that he likes, the overlapping portion is really quite small. (laughs) There's not a lot of stuff that we both enjoy. And we are both obsessed with the show. We just finished season two. um, And I think I think they're in the third season now. um, So we still have up to do but it is it's like all I can think about. It's all I want. It's really nice, especially with sort of the the pain of the world and a lot of the things that are going on right now and trying to be essentially like an activist in training and, you know, doing that type of stuff to have something that's just completely ridiculous Mm -hmm. and only for fun. And, you know, I spent this, I spent a lot of years during my self-help addiction of not letting myself read fiction, for example. Mm -hmm. I thought that any time I dedicated to reading, it had to be productive. I had to be learning something. I had to be bettering myself. I mean, at this point, I've read enough books in that genre that it would take me 10,000 lifetimes to implement all the things that I've read, right? But we keep like the next okay, well, it's the next thing. It's going to be the next book. It's going to, but all you're doing is reading the things and not actually implementing them. And so for me, just giving myself space to do things just for fun, which might sound silly, but was really challenging for me to like step away from the addiction to busyness and productivity and equating being busy and being productive with being worthy and being able to say, no, it's okay to do stuff that's just for fun. It's okay to have a hobby that you don't monetize into some kind of a side hustle on the internet, right? And so it's like 
this show is kind of one example of it's just for fun. Like my husband and I are just going to watch this and it's fun. It doesn't have to lead anywhere. I don't have to like you know do anything else. So it's been nice. Oh yeah, I'm right there with you. It's it's so fun and it and it knows it's fun, which is good. Um, so as we wrap up, what's the best way for anyone who feels drawn to uh, to support your work? Um, yeah, I mean, so the podcast is the main thing that I do. Well, it's funny, actually. Um, so you said this is going to go up in September, That's right? right? Yeah. So actually, we can talk about something that doesn't exist yet, but that will Ooh. exist by then. But so the podcast, it's called Real Talk Radio, um, NicoleAntoinette.com. That's my site or, you know, Real Talk Radio on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Um, it's a listener supported show, so I don't have ads or anything like that. It's supported through a platform called Patreon. So basically, you know, people who love the show and want kind of to be in the behind the scenes community and they want bonus content, all that kind of stuff. Um, they pay $8 or more, you know, per each season and, um, it's really fun. So if people want to check it out or support the show, that's kind of the way to do that. But what I'm working on right now, speaking on the, the heels of all this hiking talk, I'm starting a hiking blog, actually, like to share oh, cool. hiking stories. Yeah, I thought about it for a while. Like I said, I blogged for eight years, stopped in 2015. What is that? There's an ice cream truck that comes by our house at this time every single day. And Amazing. apparently we moved up north in England like a few months ago. And apparently it's a thing in every neighborhood. And I'm convinced they're drug dealers. But anyway... That's, That's so funny. Okay. Yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I, yeah, I blogged for eight years, stopped blogging, and deleted the entire blog in 2015, which is also something that people couldn't believe. But I'm definitely, speaking of change, one of those people who sort of needs to burn things to the ground mm-hmm. in order to start over. Not everyone's like that, but again, accept who you are, right? Like I need to burn it down and then be done with it. Um, and when I was on my hike last year, I shared stories as I was going through Instagram, that kind of stuff, but I took a lot of really detailed notes throughout the hike because I had a feeling that I would want to do some writing and some story sharing around it. And so it's been really fun. I've been working the last month or so on, you know, turning those like essentially like series of jumbled notes into actually hopefully coherent and somewhat enjoyable stories to share with people. Um, So yeah, I mean, by the time this goes up, that will definitely be live. So I am excited. It's fun to work on a creative project that no one has seen yet, right? That it's kind of like just for you and secret. And while I'm excited to share it too, of course, it feels good to just be working on this thing that's just mine right now. Oh, that's so exciting. I can't wait to check that out and to, I'll share the link to it in the show notes, of course. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's been so much fun to talk about all of this, and it's given me lots to think about um, in terms of change and how I approach change, so I know other people will love it too. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, this was fun. You can find the show notes for this episode at sarahstars.com slash podcast slash 93. And if you want to talk about, you know, what kind of changes you're trying to make in your life, what might feel like what's holding you back, and maybe we can all support each other in stepping forward with the actions that it'll take to get there, join us in Girl Gang HQ, our private Facebook group. And I'd actually plan to have a few more episodes pre-recorded before my maternity leave, but some scheduling conflicts and actually just, to be honest, a complete lack of energy on my part that I felt was like, that I felt like was holding me back from being a really engaged interviewer means that this is the end of our pre-recorded interviews. And so I'm going to hop back into live recording really, really soon. And so our next episode in two weeks' time will be an FAQ with me. I thought that would be a really good way to get back into the swing of things because I know a lot of you have questions about, you know, the end of my pregnancy, the birth, um, how early parenting is going for our family. So if you have any questions, you can email them to me at hello at sarahstars.com or just get in touch on Instagram, Twitter, or in Girl Gang HQ. So until then, grab your Girl Gang and have a conversation that matters.